you would open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you're doing that, our kids are dismissed to their classes. And when you have 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you did sit, I apologize. I'm going to ask you to stand again. Praise the Lord. It's helping you work those quads this morning. I know you, I know you came to church to do that, you know. Get a little workout in, a little squat up and down. Praise the name of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When you got it, say so. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore... Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these wonderful reminders that we have had as we sang songs unto you of your greatness, of your majesty, of your power that that encourages us as your sons and daughters, that you are a trustworthy God. Lord, we thank you for this. This morning, we ask you, God, that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church In these next few moments, I pray, Lord, that we would not cease our worship, but that our worship would continue as we focus our attention and affection on you, as we hear your word. Lord God, may we honor you not by hearing it alone, but being doers of it. We pray all of these things in Jesus' strong name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you do not have an outline, if you didn't get an outline when you came in, you can raise your hand and the ushers will be sure to bring you an outline so that way you can follow along in the introduction and you can also hopefully take some notes and as always I encourage you to take these uh, this this outline and, and, and share it with someone. You can talk to them about what you learned on Sunday. That'll help you to help someone else become a, a follower of Christ hopefully and I hope that you will not just do that but that you will take these words that you hear today and that you will meditate on them throughout the week because I don't want you to just be a Sunday listener and a Monday through Saturday just living how you want to live. Amen? 
Amen. I love you too much to just let you be like that, right? So I've done my part. Now you got to do yours, right? Amen. So if you look at your outline, and uh, something that is seemingly natural in us is the act of imitating those we admire, right? You think about kids, and as you look at children, they see somebody, a parent typically, and, you know, they, they want to imitate. They want to do the things that their parents are doing, right? Like that's something that comes natural to us. As you, as you grow up, you see people that you uh, think that are good at something, and you want to imitate them, right? If you're into athletics, you know, you see a person that you like. And you're like, you know what? I want to dribble like them. You know, I want to be like them, right? And 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 it's because they're good. They inspire you in some way, shape, or form. Now, here's the thing: our goal as disciples of Christ is tied into our mandate to be our mandate to be imitators of Christ. When we came to Jesus Christ, it wasn't just for us to just come and say a prayer and, and, and get our life right with God, but it was to be people who are imitators of Christ, right? The title of the message this morning is Imitation is the Goal. If you just look down really quickly in your Bibles to chapter 11, verse 1, that's where we're going to end, but I want you to look there because look at the words of the Apostle Paul as he ends his exhortation in dealing with the topic of eating food sacrificed to idols, verse 11, or chapter 11. In verse 1, he says this, he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So us, again, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be imitators of Christ. We're called to imitate him in everything that we do. Jesus, when he called his disciples to follow him, this wasn't just directional, this was transactional. This wasn't just for them to, hey, turn around from where you are and come away from what you are doing, but I want you to follow me, not just walk behind me, but I want you to obey me. I want you to see as you see in your outline. I want you to hear me as your teacher. I want you to see me as your example. I want you to follow me as your Lord. That's what he was talking about when he called them to follow him. And so again, following Jesus isn't simply saying a prayer, but it's following him. Nothing has changed. We have, last line in your outline there, we have been given a mandate, and here's the reason why this is so important. It is because our world desperately needs to see imitators in action. Our world, more than anything else, needs to see those who are ready and willing and desirous to imitate Jesus in everything that we are doing. That is what our world needs. Our, our world needs to see people who are really not just talking about following Christ, but are really following him. I want you to think about this this morning. The more closely we imitate Christ, the better we are for the world around us. The more closely we imitate Christ, the better we are for the world around us. Now, I want you to just think about that, right, for a moment. Think about your family. If you were faithfully imitating, maybe you are, I don't know, but if you were faithfully imitating Christ in, 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 in every moment that you could think of, do you think that that would be better for your family? For your marriage, right? For your parenting. Think about your workplace, right? Wherever you work, the, the people around. If you were imitating Christ in everything that you are doing, would that not affect people in a positive way? It may offend some people. Jesus wasn't, you know, like this just, you know, nice guy that just walked around, laughed at everybody's jokes, you know, never said anything. That isn't Jesus, but here's the thing. I'm not saying that it's going to make everybody feel better. I said it's better for those around you, right? You go to the doctor and you have some pain or whatever the case is, and when you go to the doctor and he tells you, hey, you need to do A, B, C, and D, he's not just giggling with you. Come on now. 
He's not, he's not just you know, making jokes, but he is actually telling you some things that are hopefully going to be better for you. And so we are called to be these imitators of Jesus. And so again, I repeat this, and I want you to think about this. The more closely we imitate Christ, the better we are for the world around us. In a couple of days, uh, we are going to go to the polls, hopefully, or maybe you already did, and you're going to vote. And, and I think voting is important. Someone say amen to that. Right? I think voting is important. You should vote your conscience. You should be a person that wants to influence culture by the way you vote. But can I tell you something? More than your vote, this culture needs your life. Let me say it again. More than your vote, this culture needs your life. Because I have one vote, right? And, and, it, and, and it may not make an overall impact in, this, in the larger scheme of themes, but things, but here is this. My vote is between me and the Lord, right? I'm saying to God, hey, this is what I believe is right. This is the way that I think we should go. These are the things that I think that are good. That's what I'm saying before the Lord more than anything else. But living in the culture, come on now. Living in the world every day, imitating Jesus is so extremely necessary. So how is it that we imitate Christ? So obviously, we could talk about a whole bunch of stuff when we talk about imitating Jesus. I think one of the greatest things that we see in Christ is that he is a servant leader, is he not? He is one that, 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 that was seated in glory. I encourage you to go, Philippians chapter 2, read that chapter and look at this beautiful reminder of the incarnation of Jesus, how the God of heaven came down and put on flesh. He did that for us, submitting himself to death, death on the cross. I mean, you want to talk about a servant leader, that is him. But there's something else that you see in that, and I think that we see this in the text if we're talking about imitating Jesus. And I would ask you to repeat this after me this morning, say humility imitates Christ. Humility imitates Christ. And so the verses that we read here, the, the, these are verses, again, and I just want to bring, bring us into the context of what we're talking about. But he just pulled chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians out and said, hey, we're going to talk about this this morning. But we've been walking through this. And you guys remember in chapter 8, right, he started to answer the question. Now, now concerning foods sacrificed to idols, and the Apostle Paul has started his answer to them, right? I told you I love him. He gives long answers. I like long answers, right? They're thorough. They're not just long answers. They're thorough answers. Come on now, right? Now, he, he's, not, he's not just long-winded. He's being thorough. He's making sure that he is educating, that he is teaching, that he is admonishing correctly those who ask this question. As you know, sometimes there are some questions that are like yes or no. It's simple, right? And, and I know for some of us that's, your, you know, that's the way you like to answer questions, right? Someone asks you a question, yes. Someone asks you a question, no. And you don't want to give any explanation. You don't want to elaborate. Anyway, that's not me. I don't have that problem. I don't have that issue, right? I think, I, I, I think that, that especially in sometimes, you know, there is yes or no answers. But, but, but ultimately, we have the Apostle Paul who is answering. So he begins to talk about, and as Minister Hector was, was exhorting us and as, as he was praying, that there is no God. There is no God like our God. There are no gods in that sense. Every other God is a false deity, a fabrication of the hearts of men and women. And, and so there is no other real God that our God is contending with. And so idols in and of themselves are nothing, right? They have no power. They, they, they're dead objects, right? And especially in the context of Corinth, when we're thinking about the temples where they used to sacrifice idols and they were having these feasts and Christians who were in Corinth, they were going there to eat. They were going there to participate in the eating. And so Paul is like, this is not an issue. But then he moves on, right? And he begins to tell them, when we talked about this last week in chapter 9, he begins to remind them of the fact that we are supposed to live not for my conscience, 
but for the conscience of those around me. I'm not supposed to just live in my freedom. I'm not just supposed to do the things that I know that I'm allowed to do, but I'm supposed to think about those around me because my behavior and my actions, even the things that I am free to do, can affect others negatively. And so if I, if you, are going to walk in love then we need to think about the brothers or sisters around us before we make decisions to participate in certain activities, whatever they may be. We need to consider how can this affect someone? How can this offend someone? How can this injure someone's faith? How can this hinder someone's worship? How can my actions affect those around us? That's what Paul talks about in chapter 9. He walks through that again. I encourage you to go back, hear the message if you didn't hear it. And then today in chapter 10, he closes up with his exhortation, and what he does is he goes back and he makes us look at the children of Israel as an example. And, he's, and, and again, he's still talking about idolatry, and he's pointing out, listen, moreover, brethren, verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Look at verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The God we serve is the same God of these scriptures that we're talking about. The God we serve is an all-consuming fire. The God we serve is holy. He is righteous. You don't serve him according to your dictates. You don't serve him according to your standards. You don't live how you want to live and say, well, hopefully that is good enough. No, no, no. The God that we serve has his standards. The scriptures tell us in the book of Isaiah, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. The problem with us is that we want to bring God down to our level. We want, we want a God to worship in our image instead of worshiping a God who is his image. The God who is holy, the God who is righteous, the God who is pure. Israel is in the wilderness. And what I want you to see here, because I think that this is so important, again, a lot of times we as New Covenant believers, right, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, followers of God because of the sacrifice of Christ, we discount, I think, a lot of times the Old Testament. We, don't, we, we think the Old Testament's got a bunch of stories and a bunch of stuff in there, but why were those things written? They were written for our example. They were written for our admonition. They were written for us so we would know who the God is that we claim to worship, who the God is that we claim to serve. They were written so that way we could look back and remember, now you got to think about this, when Paul is writing these words, he is writing a letter to a church. They do not have the New Testament like we have. They don't have the completed Bible that we have. They had the Old Testament, and probably the people in Corinth didn't even possess the Old Testament like we do. You know why? Because they were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish, they weren't Jewish people that got converted. So they weren't even proficient in the Torah. That's the reason why he says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware 
Because being that they were Gentile believers, they may not have understood all of the things that are in the Torah. They may not have read those stories that you and I think, oh, you know, you talk, you talk to your kids, you know, especially, you know, they, they grew up in church and you ask them about stories. Oh, they know about Noah. They know about Joseph. I mean, they know about the Red Sea. They know about Moses and Pharaoh. They know about, you know, they, they know it all. They know all the stories. But those stories aren't just there to teach our kids some principles or, or to teach us. Those stories are there to show us who this God is that we serve. And what we find here is that God, and, 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 and this is what Paul is doing. Paul is doing something that is so beautiful. He is letting them know some things. He is speaking in this new covenant language, right, this, this language of grace, these things that we have in the, new, in the New Testament that we practice, that they were practicing. He speaks to them about this, but he points out that they were experiencing all of this in the old covenant. He says they were all baptized. Hold on a second. I thought baptism was a new covenant thing. Oh, it is. But they were baptized into Moses when they came under the cloud of God's glory that covered them during the day. And they walked through the dry ground on the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses. They were drinking that same spiritual drink. They ate that spiritual food. What, what is he talking? He is pointing to this thing that we partake of every week, and it is communion. They experienced all of these blessings. They were, they, they were rescued from Egypt. But why were they rescued from Egypt? You got to go back a little bit further because in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, there was this guy by the name of Abram who God called and said, listen, I want you to follow me, leave your father's house, go to a place that you don't know, and I am going to bless you. But I'm not just going to bless you because I think you're cute. I'm going to bless you because I have a purpose for you. And through you, all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And then he has these sons, right? So, it's, so, so he has this son, Jacob, right, and, and changes his name to Israel, and then Israel becomes this great nation, right? That's his grandson. Israel ends up in Egypt. What does Egypt symbolize? Slavery. Bondage. Before you came to Jesus, where were you? Slavery. Bondage. Hopefully you're not there now. But if you are, there's hope. Why? Because there's a rescuer who actually shows up. There's a redeemer who actually shows up. There is one who comes to set the people free. I was sitting down with my mom. We were having breakfast. We were talking about the Old Testament, and she shared this thing. She said she was talking about the burning bush, and she was like, you know, I was sitting in a Bible study, and we were talking about the burning bush, and I pointed out, I said, hey, you know, as I was reading in my Jewish Bible, they, they point out that the burning bush was potentially, there's not, there's not 100% certainty of this, but there's potentially that this was not just a burning bush, but this was a thorny bush. Have you, ever, have you heard of anything that has to do with thorns in the New Testament? Didn't Jesus wear a crown of thorns? So, so, so was there a prefigure of God showing up in this thorny bush who is calling Moses, the deliverer, saying, I want to bring my people out of the land of Egypt. I want to bring them into the land of promise. Just prefiguring Christ. That's all he's doing. And then we have our Savior who comes on the scene and he dies he rises again. That's what he does for us in the New Testament. But you know what? The, well, why is it so important? Because we often think, hey, we only see grace after the cross. That's a lie. That's because we don't know our Bible. 
Here's what happened. God liberated the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, freed them, brought them into this place of covenant relationship with them, and gave them the covenant of the law. So what does he do? He sets them free. Then he says, this is how free people live. That's what he does. And let me ask you a question. Doesn't that sound like our Christianity? Doesn't sound like that, that's the, see, because here's the thing. The children of Israel could do nothing to free themselves. Oh, come on now. The children of Israel could do, the, listen, Egypt was too powerful for them. They had too much on them. Even though, even though Israel was growing and, and, and Egypt was feeling like, you know, there was some jealousy going on. There was some feelings of insecurity. If these people decide to rise up, then guess what? They're going to, they're gonna, you know, annihilate us. They saw the prosperity. But despite that, by themselves, they could not liberate themselves. What are, all of us are born into sin. We are separated from God. We can do nothing. To, to, to save ourselves, but God comes to rescue us. Jesus dies in our place, sheds blood in our place, rises again in our place, and he offers us a rescue to bring us into this covenant relationship. Now, those are encouraging words, but here's what's discouraging about the story, is that the scripture says in verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. See, while we are encouraged that God liberated them, while we are encouraged that God brought them into baptism, that God brought them into a covenant, though we are encouraged by that, we should also be sobered by the fact that, man, God may not always be well pleased with us. We, 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 I, I like what one writer said, these are all privileges that are there. Privileges don't always equal success. Hello. They had all these privileges, and yet they found themselves confronting the judgment of God. So the writer goes on because he wants to continue, right? Paul wants to continue to encourage us. He says in verse 6, now these things became our examples. These things are written for our examples to the intent. What is the purpose? To the intent that we should not. So what is the point? The point is God was not well pleased with them. And so, here is the reason why these things are written. It is so we would not do the things they did. So we would not think, man, we have all these privileges. We would not think, hey, we've been baptized. Hey, we partake of communion. Hey, we know the covenants. Hey, we know the truth about God. Hey, we have all of this stuff in our lives that, that you know, as Christians, we're good to go. But we seem to fall into this category where we're living for the wrong stuff. Where we are, we are given to the wrong things, right? And so let's look at what the Apostle Paul writes. He says that to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So we need to be sure in our lives that our desires, that word lust there is simply, it's, it's a word that means strong desire. You can have a strong desire for good. You wouldn't call it lust, you would, you would call it passion, you would call it drive, right? But, but, but the point is, the word means strong desire, but they were lusting after evil things. All the time while they were out there in the wilderness, what was Israel doing? Oh man, you brought us out here to die, right? God's over here feeding them, right, gives them manna, manna's not good enough. At first it's like, wow, this is great, they're having a good, and then, then they're like, this isn't good enough, they're thirsty. You know, he gives them water from a rock. All of these things that, that, that we just talked about, right, in the verses before, they have all, and yet they're out there, they're, lust, they're looking back at their land of bondage. Like, hey, I, I would love to go back there. Now, you got to be honest with yourself now. 
Do you, do you ever think, man, if I wasn't serving Jesus, I could do so many other things? Don't, don't answer that. You look at the sacrifices you got to make, the holiness you got to live in, the things you can't do that you're used to do, or the, the things that you know your pastor's going to get up here and preach about. Come on now. Right? He's like, I'm going to just suck it up. I'm going to hear it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going I'm to hear it. He's going to say, listen. But we look back and we lust for those evil things. We look, so he says, so that way we wouldn't. It's written for us because we don't want to be those who don't please the Lord. What is our, what is our vision as a church? Okay, I got three people that said that. Let's, we, we're going to do Core Faith 101 right now. Come on now. What is our, what is our vision as a church? To please the Lord in everything that we do. In, every, in everything that we do. Is that how you live? Is, I mean, seriously. Like, are, are you living for God's pleasure or are you living for your own pleasure? Are you living for God's glory or are you living for your own desires? He says so that we wouldn't lust. And verse 7, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so first of all, that we wouldn't lust after the things that are evil, the things of this world. Secondly, that we would not become idolaters, that we would not be those who worship other things, or give our time, talent, and treasure to other things that, that don't. That's us in our context today. In that context, that they get involved in the worship that is so prevalent in the culture. Don't get it twisted, y'all because we have worship that's prevalent in our culture. We worship success. I told you when we first started this whole thing, we worship our own opinions more than anything else. Seriously. We, we worship the way we think, the way we feel, more than we, listen, you, you, I can say whatever I want to say from here, but if you're convinced about something, your opinion is more important. Even if I show you crystal clear, this is what God's word says. Uh, that's just his interpretation. The devil is a liar. It's true. The, the scriptures are true. The scriptures are. It, listen, this is absolute true so that we would not become idolaters as some of them were, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. You think God is serious about sexual purity? I think so. I think he's serious, right? I mean, he struck 23,000 people down. Because that was all tied into worship of false gods. They were committing immorality. So he says these things are written so we won't lust after evil things, so we won't become idolaters, so we won't commit sexual immorality. And let us not tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And so let's not test the Lord. Let's not be like them that are unappreciative of what God has given us and we're testing him. That, oh, we, we, we didn't get caught in our sin? I keep doing it. Let us, not, let us not test the Lord in our attitudes, in the way that we live. Wait, we shouldn't be testing the Lord. He goes on and says this, nor complain. Come on, somebody. Complain, complain, complain. Glory to God. Nor complain as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples as they, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Again, I'll quote that same writer, good beginnings don't guarantee good endings. Just because things started well 
Just because things, we, wait, wait a second, are, are we not called to persevere in the faith? Is it, it, I mean, when Jesus is talking about the end times, right, he says what? He says those who endure to the end will be saved. Again, you're not earning salvation. That's not what it is. The proof of your salvation is that you endure. Are, are you here? When, when I'm really born again, when I've really been redeemed, when I've really been sealed with the Holy Spirit, when I've really been filled with the power of God, and God is living in me, what do I do? I endure. I continue to run the race that is set before me. You read the apostles' writings, the apostle Paul is consistently calling the people of God to endure, to make their calling and election sure, to continue, to press on. I mean, these are admonitions that are there because we can start off and things seem so great, but Israel is an example for our instruction. The bottom line is this, if we are not careful to guard our hearts by not engaging in questionable behaviors, we open ourselves up to sin, these sins that I just talked about. The lusting for evil things, the idolatry, the sexual immorality, the tempting of the Lord, the complaining and never being grateful. Never just being thankful for what God has given, for what God has done, for all that he has given to us. Verses 12 and 13. These should sound a little different with that context. Therefore, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. When you read those words by themselves, they obviously strike a nerve. But when you look at it in the context of what Paul is saying here, I think it says something. It, it, it inspires a different thought. Israel thought they were standing. Again, humility. Again, humility imitates Christ. Israel thought they were standing. Israel thought that they were not going to be moved. Israel, that's what they, they, they thought they were good to go. But they weren't. There, was, there were issues that had to be addressed. And so for us, again, he's now he's speaking to the application of this. Hey, you think you're standing? Take heed lest you fall. See, that's, that's the exhortation. That's the negative side of it. Take heed lest you fall. This is clearly to who? The brothers with the stronger conscience. The one who were like, hey, we can eat in, in idols' temples. That doesn't affect us. There's no other God except the one true God. And yet, what, is Paul, what does the apostle Paul say? He says, take heed. You who think you stand, you who think you can just do whatever you want to do and it doesn't affect you, that's not true. Take heed lest you fall. Take heed. And listen, I don't want to take away the sting of the exhortation, but the bottom line is this is clearly communicating that if, 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 we, are, if we don't temper our behavior again by love and guide it by the truth of Scripture, then there is a chance you can fall. Is that, is that temporal or is that eternal? I'll let you wrestle with the Lord on that. Paul, Paul didn't, write a, he didn't, he didn't write a parenthesis there to clarify it for us. He didn't do that. He simply said, take heed lest you fall. The same way that they did. Lest you fall under God's judgment. Lest you experience the judgment of God. But here is the encouragement. Come on, you want to be encouraged, right? I smile. I'll encourage you. I want to smile, right? I want to make you feel good. Look what he says. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Here's the, here's the encouragement. No one has been tempted in a way like there's no new temptations. Come on now. There may be new technology. There may be new ways that they can spread temptation. But the temptation, lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, pride of life, those are the temptations that are there. They may manifest in different ways, but no temptation has overtaken, uh, overtaken you except such as is common to man. But 
but God is faithful. You hear those words? Those are encouraging words. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Come on, those are encouraging words. He's, he's, listen, listen, God knows, God knows what, what, what the limit is for you, right? He, he knows where, listen, we, we push the limits. We, we put ourselves in situations that we shouldn't put ourselves in. We, 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 we allow ourselves to get to places that we shouldn't be. That's, that, that's not God. God doesn't allow us to be tempted. Listen, he, he doesn't, Satan doesn't just have free reign. Hey, you can just go buck wild on them. It's not like that. Look at the story of Job, and you see that there were restraints, there were, there were restrictions that were put on the enemy. And so what we have is this. No, no, no one is tempted beyond what he's able, but with the temptation, God always gives us the way of escape. Here's the question. Will you take the way of escape? Here's the question. Is the temptation so enticing that you're like, man, I'll deal with the consequences? That's how we are. Like, like, like that thing seems so much fun. That thing seems so good. Man, I don't want to miss out on that thing. And then we start to feel some kind of way like, I mean, I can repent. We start convincing ourselves that compromise is okay. Church, compromise is never okay. Compromise is never okay, which is what the Apostle Paul is reminding us of. The second thing, again, the first thing that imitates Christ is humility. Humility imitates Christ. The second thing I'd ask you to repeat after me is this. Say abstinence imitates Christ. Abstinence imitates Christ. So verse 14, we didn't read that yet. Verse 14 says this. I love the way the Apostle Paul comes out. Therefore, therefore, right, whenever you see a therefore, you got to wonder why it's therefore, right? Come on. Therefore, right, he, he said, now that you know all of this stuff, now, now here's the response. Here is how we apply the truth that we know. Therefore, my beloved, the ones that I love, the ones that I care for in my heart, the ones that I carry before the Lord in, play, in prayer, flee from idolatry. That's a good exhortation. That's a good command. That's a good way. That, that's one of those yes answers, no answers. You don't play with idolatry. No, flee from idolatry. Period. You flee from, you, you run away from the idolatry. Anything that looks like an idol, you disengage immediately. That's what he's saying here. He's saying you don't, you, you don't play with it. You don't see if it, if it talks, right? As Hector was praying, you know, he was talking about, you know, these idols that they don't, they don't really speak. You, you don't see if the idol talks, right? You don't see if the idol can do something for you. You don't see if the idol can hear. You don't play around and see if God is really offended with me playing around with these things, right? He, you don't see that. And again, I, 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 need, I, I need to bring this into, into our present-day context. You guys aren't walking around um, um, idol temples, right? I mean, there, there's, there, there's not like a bunch of idol temples where people are eating that you're being invited in to come and have a meal, right? That, that, that's not happening to you. But we all have these idols that are here in our hearts and these idols that are all within our culture that are calling for our attention, that are calling for our, for our affection. And the Apostle Paul says, flee from it. The best way to guard against temptation, especially the temptation of idolatry, is to flee from it, not to play with it. Think about Jesus when he was in the wilderness and he was being tempted by the enemy. Did he play around with the devil? That's not what he did, right? The, the, the enemy said, come on, let's dance. We're going to dance right now, I'm just saying. Uh, 
But the enemy, right? The, 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 the enemy is tempting Jesus, right? <laughs> he's tempting Christ. And Jesus doesn't like, he's, he's not having like a full-on conversation with him. He's like, hey, turn those stones into bread. He's like, nah, man shall not live by bread alone. Get behind me. He fled from that. I'm not even going to play with that. He didn't sit there and say, man, I've been out here fasting for a while. I'm hungry. I got the power to turn those things into bread. I am the son of God. I can do that. No, he didn't do that. Okay, check this out. Let me take you to this high, you know, this, this high place, and I'm going to just bow to me, right? And I'll give you everything. Why, why does that temptation matter? Well, wait a second, because Adam, you got to remember this now, Adam lost authority in the garden, did he not? He forfeited authority in this world, in this kingdom. And so now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is coming here through his death, burial, and resurrection, and he is regaining authority. What did he say at the end of his ministry when he was uh, departing from his disciples? He says, now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Wait a second, I thought he was God the Son. What happened was there was a transfer, but hey, I'll give you a shortcut. Here it is, just bow to me. Bow to me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all the authority that Adam gave up. I will give it to you. Jesus was like, you should have no other gods before. He didn't, he, he didn't, he didn't sit there and contemplate it like, 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 maybe I can do this, you know. Hey, this might be a way for me to, no, no, no. This isn't what he did. Well, how about this one? Just, just jump from the rock. He's not going to let your foot strike a stone, right? Jesus wasn't like, well, let me see. I mean, I, I mean that was an easy one, right? That's, that's simple. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But what does he say? No, you should not tempt the Lord your God. He fled. How did he flee? He fled by hiding the word of the Lord. He hid in God's word. He hid in the word of God. That's where we flee. We run. The way of escape, it's always God's word. What does God's word say? God's word gives us the direction to show us the way out. Verse 15, we'll read there. Here, he goes on, he says, I speak, to, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Now pause with me for a moment because chapter 8, remember what he said, an idol is nothing. An idol doesn't have power. And now the Apostle Paul is drawing a different conclusion. He's pointing something out. He's saying when we gather together and we do this weekly, and it's a little, it's much, much different than what it was in the first century. It definitely looked nothing like this. Communion was nothing like, like what we do now. But there was a cup of blessing. We've, for those of you that have gone through the Seder meal with us, think about that moment when Pastor John is up there and he has the four cups that are there on the table. And he has all these different elements that are there. The cup of blessing, when they were partaking of this cup of blessing. They were being reminded of the body. But, but, but here's the thing that I want you to get about communion, and we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, ne next week when we talk about communion. But when you partake of communion, it's not simply some wafer and juice. Now hear me. I don't believe these things become the body of Christ. I don't think the scriptures teach that. However, I believe that God is present in communion in a special way. 
There is a spiritual engagement. The same way that Israel was out there in the wilderness and they were partaking of Christ in a pre-incarnate way, it's the same way every time that we gather together around the communion table, we are engaging. This is a sacred and holy moment. That's the reason why we give such a strong exhortation before we partake of communion. And so Paul is saying when you partake of communion, this, you, you are partaking of, of, of an experience with the Lord. You're experiencing him in a powerful way. And, and then he goes on. He uses the Old Testament again as an example of those who partake of the altar, of those who eat the sacrifices there. Verse 20, he says, rather, to answer his own question, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. So Paul says, for those in, in the context there that are in those temples that are uh, participating in these meals, while those idols have no power, the problem is, the worship is being offered to demons. See, when we give our life to idolatry, you have to understand something. While there may not be a statue that is roaming or, or that is being presented before you, when you bow to idolatry, you need to understand that there is a demonic force that is vying for your attention, that is vying for your affection. The enemy wants you to be consumed with other things besides God. The enemy wants your heart to be torn between pure and holy worship of one true God and all of these other affections and appetites and things that you desire. Again, we talk about these, these different idols that we have. Money is a great idol that we bow to easily. Why? Because money moves the earth. Come on now. Everybody in this room and online could probably do with a little bit more money. Come on now. I know I could, and if you can't, hook a brother up. I'm just saying. It's easy, though, to, to give our time and our affection and our devotion and our strength and everything to accrue more money, is it not? That's easy to do. Family can become an idol. You know that, right? Your family, that you become so consumed with your family. And, man, Jesus, Jesus said, man, if you love anyone more than me, you're not worthy of me. Now listen, does that mean you should not love your family? Of course you should love your family. Of course you should care for your family. But your family should not be an idol in your life. The accolades of people, the pats on the back, those things can become idols. How about this one? I know you all like, he's hitting us hard. Ministry, come on now, hallelujah. Ministry can become an idol in a person's life where they're so consumed and they throw everything away just because they feel like there's, there, there, there's something they're trying to satisfy. Listen, all of these things can become idols. And we have to be sure that we are doing things all for the glory and for the honor of God. And so we can't partake of these idols. We have to recognize the idols in our own hearts. I want to focus in really quickly before we move on to the third point on verse 22. Look at what he says here. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? This brings up the concept of God being a jealous God. And there's a lot of confusion about our God being a jealous God. I listened to Oprah Winfrey some years ago, and when she was explaining, I, not that I listen to her often, but I listen to her in this one particular thing. 
I don't listen to her ever. I was doing some research. But anyway, there we go. Let me, let me clarify that. because. And the reason why is because she was, she was in partnership, and I don't remember the guy's name at this moment. She probably still is in partnership with someone who is a spiritualist. And they, because they still want to maintain a connection to God, they just don't want to serve him in the organized religion sense. Definitely not Christianity. And when they were asking her her story, she explained the reason why she left organized religion, in particular Christianity, is because she was sitting down one day, and as the pastor was preaching, he said, God is a jealous God. And in her mind, she understood, how could God be jealous of me? Now, I would like to defend her pastor for a moment, okay? Because I am almost 100% sure her pastor was not saying, Oprah, you have so much money, you have so much fame, you have so much going on, God is jealous of you. I'm pretty sure that isn't when I don't even know where she was at in her life career-wise when all of this happened. Here's what I know is that when we're preaching, you all tune out sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know, I know, I see, I see. Sometimes y'all are drifting, right? I'm, I move just so I can get your attention, right? I, I, you know, I, I do certain things. You know, some of y'all start nodding off, having them long blinks. Come on now. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty animated guy, and you're falling asleep on me. Come on now. But nonetheless, right, I'll say something, and your mind starts running, right? And then you come back into the conversation. God is jealous. Hold on. He's jealous of me? That isn't what the pastor was saying. That isn't what the, but you know what? She's propagating those lies. And here's the thing. Not, you know, I, I, I don't owe Oprah anything, you know, so it doesn't matter to me. But it's not just her. There are plenty of other people who have the same issue. Well, God is jealous. Wait, wait a second. Let me, let me help you to understand something when we talk about God being jealous. Here's, here's what we have to understand. God is not some insecure, controlling deity who wants you all to himself. Are you here? When, when we think about jealousy, like we think about that person who is possessive and controlling and it's all born out of insecurity because they're afraid you might spend time with someone else who may, you know, show them that they're not all that great. Come on now. Can I tell you something? God knows you ain't ever going to find anybody as good as him. That's the reason he's jealous for you, not of you. There's a difference. He's not jealous of you. He is jealous for you. God, that, he, that word jealous can also be translated zealous. It is passionate. He loves you so much, and he knows what is best for you. Listen, he created you. Are you here? He wants you to experience his love. He wants you to experience his goodness. He wants you to experience all of the blessings that he has for you. That is what it means that he is just. He calls again. He calls us out of darkness into light. He brings us out of bondage into freedom so we can experience all that he has for us. Because he loves us. Because he's jealous for us. But here's the thing. When you and I decide that we are going to bow to other things, when we decide we're going to give our time, our talent, our treasure to other things, when we decide that we're going to devote our lives to other things, when we, what we end up doing is we end up moving from the side of God's blessing and his love to God's judgment and his anger. Listen, he's the same God. He's either burning for you or burning against you. And really, he doesn't stop burning in any direction. It's you who changes directions. 
It's not him. He's, he's consistent. He doesn't change. He is God. He is holy. He has always been that. He has always been merciful. He has always been gracious. He has always been benevolent. He has always welcomed people in who have been his enemies. He has always done that. But we choose to bow to other things. And then we make ourselves his enemy. We, we align ourselves. And listen, and this, I'm not just talking to people who don't know Jesus. I'm talking about people that follow, that, that, that say they follow him. People who one day came to Christ and everything was changed and life was transformed. But then all of a sudden things started changing in their lives. And all of a sudden their mindset started changing. They, they started to turn the way they lived. They started to turn the way that they were serving the Lord. And instead of walking with him in righteousness, they're doing their own things. We cannot do that. What's the cure for this? Again, the gospel that we present every week is to give you hope. Repentance. Recognizing, man, I'm bowing to other things. I don't want to experience God's judgment. Whether And, and now hear me now because you're going to see when we get into, when we do communion in a little bit. There is temporal judgment. There is other judgment that's more lasting and long. There's eternal judgment to be sure. But we don't want to experience God's judgment. But when we decide that we are going to tempt him, we decide that we are going to provoke him by our disobedience, then we need to rectify that. And the beauty of it is that we have a a Savior who hung on the cross to liberate us from God's wrath. A Savior who hung on the cross, who knows every idol that you battle with. A Savior who hung on the cross and recognizes where you are not living for the glory of God. And welcomes you with open arms to experience his grace and his love. But he needs you to know that his wrath is just as real as his love. His judgment is just as real as his mercy. And if you don't repent, if you don't turn from those things, you are going to experience the negative side of God's passion, not the positive side. The third thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say selflessness imitates Christ. Selflessness imitates Christ. As we're closing, the Apostle Paul, in verse 23, he says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Again, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. The Apostle Paul is, is, is reiterating the fact that, listen, he could go to sit in an idol temple, and he could eat as much meat as he wants, and everything is going to be fine. He's good. He's saying, that's lawful for me. He's like, man, but that may not be helpful. It's lawful for me. I can go ahead. I have freedom to do whatever I want to do. However, not everything edifies. My freedom may not edify my brother. My freedom may not edify my sister. We're supposed to care. Again, we're brothers keepers in this place. Here, what he does, he sets the framework of, of, of our practice. Our practice is never about us. We must, you and I must live in a way that is concerned with the well-being of others. And let me say it like this, not just believers, but also unbelievers. It's not, it's not just believers that the Apostle Paul is concerned about here. He's also concerned about unbelievers because, again, our witness is before them at all times. He goes on, verse 24, let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. Verse 25, eat, look what he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. 
In other words, go ahead and eat. You're good to go. Don't ask any questions. Just eat. Give thanks and eat. Hallelujah. If any of those who do not believe, again, non-believers, do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, again, asking no questions for conscience's sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience's sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Verse 29, conscience, I say, not your own, but the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? See, here's the thing. Paul says this. This is the application. We are free to eat, no questions, unless someone asks. Let me, get, let, let, let me give you a more personal application. If someone invites you to do something, and then after they invite you to do it, they say, hey, aren't you a Christian? Stop. Don't do it. You know why? Don't, 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 don't jump into your deep theology. No, 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 I'm free, man. That's old school. No, 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 don't do that. You know why they asked you? Because something in their conscience is saying, I don't think Christians should be doing that. I thought Christians shouldn't do those things, but you want to be all spiritual, and you want to be all free because you're a 2022 or a 2022 Christian. Come on now, right? You, you, you new school, right? You can, you can be free. Wait a second, but Paul says if they ask a question, if they, if they call into question what you're doing, don't do it. If they don't say anything, you're good to go. But the moment that they start asking, they start probing you, hold on a second, back up, don't do that thing. Because you could be a hindrance for that person to be able to come across the line of faith. Again, he's talking about unbelievers, right? He said, if the unbeliever invites you to their home, if the unbeliever asks you to do this, why is this? Our witness is always at risk when we engage in socially acceptable behaviors, but spiritually questionable. That's the, that's the bottom line. When someone can ask a question, again, it's not your conscience. It's not you. Paul is making it clear. It's not about your conscience. It's not about you knowing what you're able to do or not able to do. It's about you being wise with what you do for the sake of others. Again, brothers and sisters, we, uh, we, we can offend brothers and sisters, but we can also hinder others from coming to faith in Christ. So here's the thing. We must purpose to never allow our freedom to become a stumbling block for others. Are you here? We should never allow our freedoms to become stumbling blocks to other people. If we do, we're not operating in love. I'm getting ready to close here. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, therefore, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of others, that they may be saved. It's a salvation issue. Paul's heart is this. Why, why, why is core faith committed to pleasing God in everything that we do? Because we care about the salvation of people. We want to please, and we know this, if we're pleasing God, then he's going to move on people's hearts. 
We know if we're honoring him in the way that we live, he's going to change people's lives. That's why we want to please the Lord. And so again, here, the text is letting us know that we are supposed to be about pleasing God because we want to see people saved. So we are supposed to give no offense. We are supposed to, whatever we are doing, verse 31, you should make that a memory verse. Therefore, whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews, right, to those who know the law of God. You don't need to offend them by eating these foods that are sacrificed to idols because of the way that they look at them. Give no offense to the Greeks, those who are in, in this culture, and they know that there's supposed to be some kind of difference between the, 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 the way that you worship and the way that they worship, the way that you live and the way that they live. Give no offense to them. And give no offense to the church. You got a mixed bag of people in there. You got some Jewish people. You got some Greek people from their background. Don't give any offense to them. Be serious about their conscience. This is what Paul is saying. Live for the glory of God. Our highest aim must be the glory of God. We must keep the first and second commandment at the forefront of our minds in everything that we do. The ultimate goal is what? To imitate Christ. The ultimate goal is to imitate Christ. I was with my son last night and we were on our way to church and I was talking to him. I said, hey, you know, Josiah, uh, you know, as your dad, one of the responsibilities that I have is to help you to become a man. For those of you, you men who missed yesterday's time as our, as our men got together, I encourage you, don't miss next Saturday. We're, we're, we're being challenged, we're being encouraged to grow up in our manhood and to be men of God the way that God has called us to be. One of the challenges that was there that was presented is that we as fathers have a responsibility to help our, our boys become men. Let me say it again. One of the challenges that is there for us as fathers is to help our boys become men. Not hang out in adolescence for all their life, right? Not, not never grow up, not, not, just, not, not, not just be cool or whatever. No, 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 it's, it's for us to help them become men. And so I said, you know, so I have this responsibility and I'm explaining to him. And, you know, he's nine years old. He might, he's, I know he's not fully getting what I'm saying. But I'm like, you know, one day, Josiah, you're going to have to lead a family. And, and one day, you know, you're going to be married, and you're going to have kids, and you're going to have to lead a family. And I said, you know, probably when you're like 40. Well, first he was like, huh? You know, because he's he into all that right now. So I'm like, praise the Lord Jesus. And then I'm like, yeah, man, probably when you're like 40. He's like, 40? He's like, what about 29? I'm like, okay, 29 is cool. And I'm like, what about, you know, like 26? He's like, no, 29. I'm like, all right, so 29. So I guess, you know, that, that's where he's at right now. We'll see what happens when he turns 16. Hallelujah. Um, and once his eyes are open and, and he realizes how, how beautiful, you know, these young ladies are that he's around, and then we'll have a different prayer and a different conversation. Amen. But I asked him a question. I said, Josiah, I said, what is the most important thing to being a man? And I was so proud of him because he said love. And I was like, okay. Why was I proud? Because he didn't say Jesus. Come on now. What, 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 wait, you don't want him to say Jesus? No, because that's the go-to answer. He knows when dad is asking him questions, and 50% of the time, the answer is going to be Jesus. And so he gets away with just saying Jesus, but he said love, and I was like, okay. And I said, but let's get more specific. I'm like, what, what, what is it, what, what, is, what, what, do you, what, what do I mean by love? And he's like, well, and I, and I said, to love God. And, I, and he's, he's like, okay. And, I, you know, he's like, I get that. And I'm like, you got to love the Lord with all your heart with all your mind, with all your strength. And he's like, don't forget soul. <laughs> like, amen, amen. You're doing, you're doing this for me, son. We're good. 
And, and, and the, the, the point is that our highest aim is what? They ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of all? And he answered, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he added, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. We should live with those two things in mind, love for God and love for neighbor. Those should be the things that dominate our behavior, that dominate our actions. Those should be the things that we're saying, whether I eat or whether I drink, whatever I do, I do it for the glory of God. I'm always thinking about, man, do I love him with all my heart? Do I love him with all my strength? Do I love him with all my mind? Do I love him with all my soul? It's a humbling thought because when I'm honest about that, I can't say yes 100% of the time because there's some days, man, I love Jesus with all my mind, but there's other days my mind is all over the place. There's some days I love him with all of my strength. All of my efforts were for something that brings him glory, and there are other days that's just not true. There are some days that I love him with all, every ounce of my heart and my soul, all of my being. I, I, I mean, there are days that it's like that. And there are other days, man, I haven't thought about him the way that I should. I haven't engaged him the way that I should. And let's not even go to the part of loving my neighbor. Come on now. If I can't love him, how am I going to love my neighbor perfectly? So here's my question for you. Think about your practices. Think about your life. Think about the things that you do, the things you say yes to. Think about what you did last night. Think about what you did this past week. Think about what you did last week, and I don't know. Think about, your, think about that, and can you honestly say, whether I eat, whether I drink, whatever I did was for the glory of God. Whatever I do is for the glory of God. Can you say that with honesty? I am living fully for the glory of God. Would you stand with me, please? Bow your heads if you would. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come forward, please. Because as we're here in the last few weeks, as we've been talking about idolatry, I know the Holy Spirit has been convicting our hearts. I know he's been convicting mine. I hope it's not me alone. I know he's been dealing with us. I know last week at least half of you stood up in response to wanting to live fully for God's glory. So as you have your, your heads bowed before the Lord and your hearts humbled before him, I'm going to invite you, if you need somebody, want somebody to stand with you in prayer this, this morning. I don't know, you, you, may, you may be struggling with some idolatry in your heart. You may, be, you may be dealing with some condemnation because you're feeling like, man, I know I'm not living for his glory the way that I ought to. But I want you to know that, you're, that, that your God, the one who created you, the one who died and rose for you, he is present. And he invites you to come and be filled with his presence and power. He invites you in this moment to allow him to work inside of your heart. So if you would like somebody to pray with you this morning, some things you heard hit you in a certain way, and you say, God, I really want you to intervene. I really want you to deal with my heart. I just invite you to come forward and allow us to pray with you. 
And as we, as we do that, I'm going to go ahead and pray. And, and then as we'll, we'll worship for a few moments before we partake of communion. But Father God, we humble ourselves in your presence in this moment. And we thank you for the greatness of your love. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your might. We thank you, God, because you are the one true God. You are the creator of all. You are a consuming fire. You are holy and righteous. And I pray, Lord God, in this moment for each of us in this room and even those who are online, but I pray that you would draw our hearts closer to you in this moment. Lord, if we have been honest with you and we recognize that we're not fully living for the glory of God, Lord, would we not just acknowledge that, but would we turn from that? And would we recognize, dear God, that we need we need you. And we don't want to live for our own glory. We don't want to live for our own desires. We want to live for your glory. We want to live for your desires fully. Father, if there's idols in hearts in this room, if there is apathy in hearts in this room, Lord God, I know, Lord, because I sense that, my God. I know that there are some that are, that are in this place, Lord God, that they are just going through the motions of Christianity, Lord God. Their faith is shriveled, Lord God. Their walk with you is non-existent, my Lord. They're not seeking you. They're not in your word. They're not in prayer. They're living off the fumes of faith, and they're not walking in a vibrant relationship with you, Lord God. Father, I pray for them in this moment. Break them free from that apathy, Lord God. Break them free from that selfishness, my God. Break them free from the mentality that they're okay with you the way that they are, my God. Give them a heart of repentance in these moments, Lord. But I pray that today would be a moment of turning to you, Lord God, a moment of surrender to you, Lord God. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that your spirit, that your spirit would fill this place. And that you bring healing and deliverance to hearts all across this room, Lord God. And those who are online as well, I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen.